And you can open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 24 and 25. Let's look, Lord, in prayer. Dear Holy Father, as we've just boldly proclaimed that we stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ, may that be true. Those words are so easy to say. They roll off our lips as the artists would want them to roll off, but yet, do we actually do it? Do we actually live it? So may the things we've just proclaimed and in a way professed, may they actually be true in our lives. Help us now. So we open your word, dearly Father, may we pray, and we know that the word will do its job, but we pray for the hearts of each one of us sitting here, that we'd be willing to hear it, listen, and obey. Help us now. In your name we pray, amen. It has been said that there's four types of people in this world. We have single people, we have divorced people, and we have married people. And you may say, well, what's the other group? Well, the other group would be the happily married people. And you may think, if you're sitting here, you may look at that last group and say, those are just the naive people, right? The ones who are happily married. One day they'll learn, right? And everybody smiles and chuckles about it all. But we've all been impacted by marriage. Each one of us has had a mother and a father of some sort. Each one of us has had the opportunity of growing up with either a good marriage as an example or a poor marriage as an example, but we've all had examples of marriages, and each one of us has been interacting with this ordinance that God has ordained as marriage. Uh, the world we live in is, is trying to define things when it's outside of its biblical parameters, and they have not come up with anything that could possibly make sense of anything. As we've said before, if everything is marriage, then nothing is marriage. And so we're going to look at what God's Word has to say for us in this concept of marriage. And that's why literally the title is God's Design for Marriage. If you haven't been realizing, we've been working through the text building up to this, these two summary statements at the end of all of this. And I'd encourage you, if you're, this is a, in a way a conclusion to a three-part series on what marriage is. As we look at God's design for marriage, though, I want to be, I want to be clear, and I almost started as I was waiting for the, everybody to settle in, I might say that might be the best and only time you are that comfortable sitting in your pew at the moment, because God's Word has been very clear on this. But some of you may say, but Tim, you don't understand the person that I've married, and I may go, I don't understand them, All right, that's why I didn't marry them, right? I don't get them. But God gave you that person to marry, and I'm not talking to that person today. I'm talking to you, because the Spirit of God is for you to understand and for you to live accordingly. Because it is going to be so easy, it doesn't take any time in marriage to understand the number one problem is your spouse. All right? No one has to teach you that. Yet God's Word does not say that. God's Word says the number one problem is who? You. And you not living how God has called you to. So let's look at the text, and then we're going to break down this text. And I would say to you, as we work through this, this has probably been one of the more difficult sermons to put together. Because I would like to tell you, I will be as equal opportunity offender as I possibly can. All right, Because I, the Word of God is what the Word of God says. And we're going to talk about what the Word of God says, let come what may. 
All right, and so I've had to leave my own personal preferences aside, the things that in my knee-jerk reaction I want to do even as a dad who now has a married daughter, and so I'm going to be speaking in many different ways here through this text. So verse 24, chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to let you know, you could probably do about 30 sermons from this chapter, from these two verses here. All right, we're going to do one. All right, so here we go. Point number one, the man shall leave. The text is pretty clear there. We have a man leaving his mother and his father. Now the bond between a father and a mother is incredibly strong. The boy has literally the DNA markers of his parents. He will even look in many ways like his parents. You, there's some people that you go, it's very clear that that is your child, all right? There's no question about it. They look incredibly strong, but what we're going to see here in this passage, in marriage, a man is going to leave the natural bond of his family, and he's going to go to an even stronger bond, that of his wife. He is leaving the natural bond, going to an even stronger bond. Because notice what is happening here. The man leaves and goes to his wife. And we saw that we, last time we, we glanced off of that. Remember in the marriage ceremony where the, where the boy's already down here and the girl is being escorted by her father down here and we talked about all of the beauty of that. But in the picture of it, the boy that's standing down here has already left his mother and father. He is not escorted down by his mother and father. He is a man that has already been left, his father and mother, and is standing down here, standing on his own, waiting for his bride to be escorted by the, the father, the father being the one showing that he's giving consent. Remember, we even talked about this is what Jesus, what God the Father did in the garden where he brought Eve to Adam. And Adam then, in joy, responds in this way. The wife has been in care of her parents all along and is now being placed in the care of her husband. And that great exchange that happens right here in front of the podium. But I want to notice what is happening here. The man goes. The man leaves. The reason why he is leaving, the reason why this is going on is because he has found what he is saying is this young lady is precious to me. I'm going to leave and prepare for this young lady. The lady showing her preciousness is coming down, being watched by her father, now to be watched by the young man. The boy is leaving his parents, taking responsibility not only for his life, but being ready to care for the life of his wife. He is stepping in that same spot saying, not only will I provide for my own needs, I'm going to be providing for the needs of my wife as well. Now you may say, Tim, that's a pretty obvious statement, and why are you making such a big deal about it? I'm not. The Word of God decided, as, he was, as God was telling Moses to write this, here's what he's reminding us all. This statement is important because the boy must understand this as well as the boy's parents. The boy must understand that he is to leave his parents and to be joined to his wife. That would also mean, too, the boy's parents need to understand this as well. You go, what do you mean by that? First of all, I want to ask the parents, are you training your young men for this activity? That one day they need to be released by you to be able to take care not only of themselves, but of another person. And parents, are we parenting towards that? 
Or are we parenting in such a way that the kids are so relying on us, they will never be able to function outside in this world? And sometimes that is the hardest thing for parents to do. We joke about it and we say, I think the umbilical cord has never been cut. But I would say you're parenting to release your children out into this world. So as you're raising young men in your home, are you parenting them to understand that they will not only be responsible for themselves one day, but if God were to give them a spouse, they would be responsible for that woman as well. When we've talked about this in uh, raising young men, I, I like to say there's about three stages that every young man goes through. From the moment that they are born all the way through, and this is, just, this is not even in your notes, I thought about this morning as I was working through this. Number one, the first thing that a young boy needs to understand that there's a will to obey. That there's a will to obey that's greater than his. Because every young boy thinks, I've got it figured out, and if I can just plow through this. But when they understand that not only is their parents a will to obey, but they must obey their Heavenly Father. That there is a will greater than themselves, because every young boy wants to say, I'm the master of my own castle, right? And those, especially in those wonderful, we like to put them as terrible two years, where they've got to understand that there is an authority over you that you must obey. Your heavenly Father has given you your parents that you must obey there. Once they understand that there's a will to obey greater than themselves, they move now to a job to do, where there is a work ethic that is given, that there must be a task that they must accomplish. Even if it's as simple as taking out the trash, they understand that there's a job to do that authority has asked you to do, and you will submit to that will by doing fill in the blank. And once and only when that is accomplished, then, then is the young man able to ever get to the point of saying that there's a woman that now he can love because he has understood that there's a will to obey, that there's a job to do. Now he can take care of someone other than himself. And so my question is, are we even parenting to this task where he literally says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? Are we parenting in such a way that it's encouraging our boys to be released? Or are we raising, sadly, what we sadly see all around us as a group of men that can't even function on their own because they've never been taught to function on their own? And then when we say, as C.S. Lewis in his Abolition of Man once said, we're raising men without chess. We say to these men, hey, listen, guys, we want, you to be, um, we want you to be like this, 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 this. And all of a sudden, we need a man to stand up and to do something, to be masculine, to protect and to lay down his life for others. And all we've ever done is mock masculinity and mocked our young boys and said, if only you could be more like the female version. And we wonder why then we have these men that are not leaving their families because they don't know how to function because we never raised them to be able to stand on their own. In itself, that could be its, that's just point one. That could be its own conversation in a long time. We have not gotten to where we are by accident. So point number one, a man shall leave his father and mother. Point number two, what we're going to see is they will hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Not only does the man leave, but we will use the word he will leave and then he will leave. The man and his wife has become one. Yes, it's talking about intimacy and marriage, but it's also talking about one in every other area as well. Most of the time we move right to the intimacy thing that's what's talking about it, but it's talking about not just that, but every aspect. This is why the last name changes in the bride. She once carried her father protector name. Now she carries her new protector's name, her husband's. 
She has not lost her identity. What has become here, notice the two have become one. No one is losing their identity. A new identity has become. The couple has not lost their identity, but become a beautiful new person. Because what we see here is the couple is entering into a covenant that is so strong, that is so binding, that a new identity is established. Two shall become one flesh. This is why Paul in Ephesians calls the husband to treat his wife as he treats his own body because his wife is his own body. And just a quick summary of Paul in Ephesians there. He talks about Paul here explaining that marriage is a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. How those... Two individuals become one, just like those who are outside of the flock of God. When God opens their eyes and saves them, the union with Christ is one. So you literally are in the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is a beautiful thing that Christ cannot remove from because it literally is His own body. And so then when we say things like this, that a husband ought to nourish and cherish his wife, literally Paul can say he will nourish and cherish his wife as he does his own body because we have a new unity here, a new identity. This is why the wife is called to respect her husband. When she respects her husband, she is respecting herself. When she disrespects her husband, what is she doing? Disrespecting herself. But many times we don't think that because we think, well, there's still two individuals here, but as we look at in marriage, know what we have is one beautiful individual. And we see the two becoming one. Now, this week, as Alice and I have been, just as I say, hey, what do you think about this, and what do you think about that? I've just been talking about stuff. My helper has said to me that someone else said this before I said it, and she kept saying, no, you took that from somebody else. I don't remember who I took this next thought process from, so I decided in my notes to say, it has been said. All right, because I'm like, no, that guy didn't say it. She's like, yeah, you, you, that was not your original idea. So I'm concluding it is my original idea, but my wife thinks somebody else said it. So maybe somebody else said it. But I will say, as I have said, and as I've heard said. So here's what happens in marriage. You have people saying a lot of things that they don't really know what they're saying, and they say a lot of things that don't really make sense. All right, but biblically speaking, the next thing I'm going to say, if we truly understand that two have become one, does not make biblical sense, but everybody goes, oh, yeah, of course. All right, so a couple of weeks ago, my daughter gets married, and people came up to me and said, Tim, you got a new son. And everything in me wanted to go, I understand what you're saying. But let me be honest, I didn't get a new son. Now, he's in my family, but two have become what? One. He's not my son. Yeah, I get it. Son-in-law, I get all that jazz, all right? But what do we have? Two becoming one, right? They're their own identity. Like Michael and Hannah will stand before God on their own two feet giving an account. All right? Yes, I will always be their father, my, Hannah's father, and yes, I will be the parent, and Lord willing, if God blesses a grandparent and all those other things, I understand that. But in God's economy, what are they? He did not get attached to my family. They became what? their own, their one family there. And now that might be really easy, and as Caleb likes to say at CBC, it becomes not a family tree, a family branch, or, or bush, right? As he likes to say, because everybody starts to get married to everybody here. But as we walk through this, what we have in front of us here is an opportunity to understand that two have become one. So that means my relationship with them is also different. 
As the father, my relationship now with my daughter is completely different in this way. I am still her parent, but I am not parenting her the same way I did before she was married. Now, this is the hardest part for parents to grasp. They are, I now have to give counsel. Now, I, I will say this too because it's easy right now. They've only been married a couple of weeks. I have to give counsel when counsel is asked. All right, let me just help you through that, all right? You who may have had children, who you like to give counsel, whether they ask for that counsel or not, is not the role of a parent. The role of the parent is not, hey, let me call up and let me just tell you all the things you've been doing wrong. Now, it might be a knee-jerk reaction to want to give counsel where counsel is not asked, but the role of a parent, once a child has been married, is they will stand before God. Now, you can say to your children, would you like to know my thoughts on that? And if they say no, what does that mean? No. All right. Now, that might be the hardest thing while you watch them make the, some d- dumb mistake after dumb mistake. And you go, would you like some counsel on that? And if the answer is no, you don't say, well, let me let me tell you. I mean, that has destroyed many families when the family has not realized that two have become one. And now the role of the interaction with the parent is one of counselor and advisor, not as parent. But I'll tell you, that is much harder, sadly, many times for the parent, but it can also be just as hard for the kid, because here's what happened. Even today, I sent my daughter a text this morning, and I said, would you like to do this? And she said, I would like to. And I literally, because we were working through this, said, I or we? And she goes, oh, I should talk to him about it. I'm like, yeah, you should, because I don't really care what you want to do. It's a we conversation now. And that is hard, because as a dad, I liked her response. But everything in me wanted to go, that's great, I got Hannah on my side. But it's not Hannah on my side anymore, it's a we on the side. And that is so hard for couples. So couples, you need to act that way. And parents, you need to understand that two have become one. And that is so easy to say, but so hard to live out. Now, for you married couples, you new married couples, before you think, you tell them, Pastor Tim. There is much wisdom in counsel. You have no earthly clue what you are stepping into. And those who have been married for 50 years can tell you, you, they still are starting to learn what this looks like. Text again. The man leaves. He holds fast to his wife, and they have become one flesh. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The two were unashamed. The two becoming one were unashamed. Now Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. No need for clothing to protect them from the harsh environment, nor the shame of sin that we'll see in chapter 3. In the marriage bed especially, when two become one, there is great vulnerability. The vulnerability in the marriage bed is what builds trust. And the marriage bed should be free from any type of judgment, full of love and acceptance, not one of comparison or shame. In a way, the marriage bed, if you want to call it, is a perfect picture of Eden living before sin. Where we live out the old song that good old Billy Joel wrote, I love you just the way you are, is the way we interact with one another in marriage. This is the way God made you for me. And I love you just the way you are. Before we put an end to this, um, I want to share with you 
some things that the Lord has taught me through this. And it was a very helpful time. Uh, about I don't know, a couple of months ago, you guys as a church sent Pastor Caleb and I down to the Ligonier Conference where Sinclair Ferguson did a phenomenal message on this, on the verses, basically chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And I want to give you three points that he brought out because they're great summary statements of this. And I would say this is a good summary for us to just make sure we understand. So, first what he says is that marriage, sadly many times we think marriage is immediately for procreation, be fruitful and multiply. He said, but it is so more than that before it ever got to that. It was so much greater than that. That marriage is not just having kids, it is so more than that. We should not just make it down to the only reason we get married is to have kids. There is so much more depth to this concept. So here, what he says first in Genesis 2.18. We see here, as he says, remember Adam is crying out, right? It's not good should man should be alone, right? And I will make a helper for him. God says, declares this, that he needs a helper. Marriage is for deep companionship. The foundation is not romantic love. I want to make sure we're clear on this. The foundation of marriage is not romantic love, but a best friend, deep companionship. Sadly, many times we have it backwards. Like the old song says, love then marriage. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's truly be honest with ourselves. It is marriage and then we learn how to love this person. Because it is when you stood down at the altar with the girl that you thought or the guy you thought you loved more than anything... Any time into marriage, you'll realize you had no idea what love was until later. Let's be honest, you got married to a complete another stranger, and it was only through the years of the ups and downs of marriage that caused your heart to fall in love with that person to truly understand what love is. It's interesting, too, when he, uh, Sinclair said, isn't it interesting that God brings Eve to Adam and they start their journey of love together? Adam and Eve did not date for a while to see if they had good synergy. God just says, here's your helper. And now they went and started the journey of love together. I just A point that I thought was just really interesting as he went through it, because he, go, he went on to say that this person should be your lifelong best friend. This person that you were marrying should be your lifelong best friend. And sadly yet, I have met with couple after couple, I've had conversations with Couples where they will go, oh, no, my spouse is not my best friend. And I would go, well, then what are they? Like your spouse, by definition, is your deepest companionship you could possibly have. And if your spouse is not your best friend, I would encourage you, I would implore you, work to that end. Do not just say, oh, well, we don't, I like spending more time with, you know, Billy Bob fishing than I do with my spouse. Well, guess what? Billy Bob needs to put a second place until you until your spouse becomes your best friend you work at it because remember love as we talked about before is a choice it is not something you fall into beauty passes we all know that but a friendship that is deep that is built on god's word lasts the test of time this is hard at first When you marry this stranger, and this is, I'll give you an example from Allison and I, life. We were laughing about this the other day. So we get married, and I had, th so I grew up with all, all boys. We even said, and mom was one of the boys too, all right? So like, what's up with this girl thing that now is in my life? And so all of a sudden, Allison and I get married, and I'm trying to figure out like, what do we do together now? 
And so in my mind, I'm like, well, what did I do with my brothers? Because like, that's what I'm used to doing. Like when you were just hanging out, what do you want to do? So I was like, well, I'll throw the football with her. Like, cause that's what I do with my brothers, right? So then we were out and threw the, I threw the football to her and I'm like, all right, after we, she called a couple, I said, all right, now this time you're going to catch it and try to run past me. All right. And, because like, what else are you supposed to do? You're kind of like, I, I don't know. Like, what do girls do for fun? I don't know. You know, like, and so she, I throw the football to her. She comes, tries to run by me. And what would I do if my brother was trying to run by me? I would tackle her. So what do I do? I tackle her. And all of a sudden she's laying on the ground crying. Well, my brothers didn't do that. And I'm sitting at her looking, going, why are you crying? You know, like this, we're trying to have fun together, right? Like this is what we do. And then I had to learn, I had to put aside those things and go, okay, because now two have become one, guess what? We need to do certain activities we can do together. But if we're not careful, I start to go, well, she is not like that. I'm going to find a guy that's just as much fun to hang out with and so the two of us go off and do this, and you're, you're like, what's the point of getting married? And so we have to set aside some of the things that we both like doing on our own to go like, so what does this look like? And so we, we work through this, like, okay, let's play tennis, something we can both back and forth do. Let's go for a canoe ride. All these other things are like, no, I mean, like, I, I, let's, I didn't mind dropping my shoulder into her, but it's like, but that's not what she has been called to do. But if we're not careful, we look at those things, and then if we're not even... Gentlemen, honestly, what do we struggle with? All of our lives, we've been told to exploit the weakness found in others. This is, what, this is a male thing that we've been given. When you see weakness, what do you do? When you're playing football, if there's a guy that can't tackle, every play is just run down through that guy, and you send him off, and he's got his own issues to deal with, but every play we're running by that. We don't go, we feel sorry for that tackle. No. Every play is just run down there until we win the game. This is driven into us, and all of a sudden, we marry this lady who in some ways is not as strong as we think should be in certain areas, and what do we want to do? Disrespect and exploit instead of care for, nourish, and love. And so then all of a sudden we start saying to our wives, it would be better if you were more like me instead of what does this new unity look like? Because we have been called to deep, passionate companionship. Not only that, in chapter 2, verse 22 here, remember, we've been called not to deep, also to deep uh, companionship, but to mutual enjoyment. Remember where Adam cries out, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the enjoyment that is to be found in marriage. Marriage is to be enjoyment emotionally and physically as well. The world around us has made physical enjoyment what it's all about, but we need to make sure we understand we have been called to have mutual enjoyment of expressions of love all throughout our marriage. Because that enjoyment, mutual enjoyment, God has given a helper directly fit just for you. Do you believe the helper that God has given is directly just for you? And I'm asking you that, really, do you believe that? And I'm not, not when all the sun is shining out and everything's great. I'm meaning it right now. Do you actually believe that? Because here's what happens. And this happened, it was an interesting thing that I was taught this lesson. So I had a college roommate who, who his girlfriend was coming up to visit. And this is the way this guy described it. This woman, he said, I love her to death. She's got a phenomenal personality. She's beautiful. I love doing stuff with her, right? So in my mind, I'm like, I I'm, I'm, can't wait to meet this young lady, right? Like, he was just flowing how great she was. She was funny. She was attractive. The greatest thing ever. 
Well, the day arrives, and we were going to go out and grab lunch, and she was nothing but not funny at all. Her personality was as dry as dry could be. I did not find her even the least bit attractive, all right? And he's like, Tim, what do you think? And I'm like, it's clear she is for you, all right? Because, like, you are what God has given for her. She is not for me. She is definitely for you. And they went off and got married and had a wonderful life together. But it hit the point again is the helper is directly for you. Do we understand that? Because in our minds we all go, let me give you, God, what I think I need. And God knows exactly what you need. That is why Genesis 2.25, as we've talked about this, and the man and his wife are naked and they were not ashamed, the two becoming one in verse 24. The last is that we have been called into a covenant commitment in marriage. We have been called to a covenant commitment to one another. Marriage is a radical commitment to one other person. Marriage is a radical commitment. Uh, Sinclair says he starts off every premarital counseling with telling the bride as much as he can, this day is not about you. He, Sinclair went through it, he said, because I tried to tell him this day is a glorious picture of Christ in the church and a reminder of everyone else who has gone before a commitment of what they have called themselves to, what God has called you to. Because if marriage is for deep companionship for mutual enjoyment and for covenant commitment, we can boldly declare that everything God has done in your life is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish what He has decreed. So that means if you are in the sound of my voice and you are married, I don't care how good your marriage is going, I don't care how bad your marriage is going, God has decreed for you to marry that person that He has put in place for you, let come what may, because you have committed to them in this marriage commitment. It is the start of a beautiful covenant and a reminder of this covenant that was made before God and before others. And we as a church body need to fight and encourage one another along these paths. Because here's what's going to happen. And I know without a shadow of a doubt there are marriages in this room that are going really well. And there are marriages in this room that this week was horrible. And there are marriages in this room right now that if, you were to, if I were to ask you right now to give each other a kiss, you'd probably spit nails at each other. All right? I get all of that. That happens. It happens all, all the time because Satan wants to attack the foundation of marriage. And, I'm, and real quick, it is easy for us to say, you tell him, Tim. I am not talking to them. I am talking to you. What is your God-given role right now? Because this is what happens all the time. I don't know how many times if I were to go around and look at each one of you and say, how is your marriage? You will tell me it's going great. If I look at your spouse and say, how well is your marriage going? Then I'll get an honest answer. All right? Because here's what happens. We love to act like everything's going okay when we know down inside if we actually dealt with the issues, then things would be doing what? We would start to see what God has called us to, and then we would start having to making the changes we would have to make. You can pass off a good marriage to anyone, but not God. Because one day you will stand before God and give an account for your role that you played in your marriage. Are you doing what God has called you to do? But Tim, my spouse doesn't love me. All right, are you loving them? I'm not talking to your spouse. Because last time we checked and you looked at love, love was a selfless offering. Love was not, I will love you when you are lovely. It was a selfless offering of love to them. 
We love to have these things said. We all sit there, and when, when the bride comes down the aisle, and everybody just gets all swept away in the emotions of it, but almost I would want to say, do we understand the gravity of what is taking place here? That is why divorce is such a brutal, brutal thing, because it is ripping apart one. And the consequences of that last for a lifetime. So, what I'd like for you to do right now, I'd like for you to take your spouse's hand, if you can. Hold your spouse's hand. No matter if you're squeezing it so tight that you want to break it right now, I'm telling you to grab your spouse's hand. Now, I came across a change in verbiage. You know in the wedding ceremony when people say, will you, and everybody goes, I do, all right? I think from here on out, and so... uh, We're going to change our verbiage when you guys get married there. We're going to change instead of to I do, we're going to change it to I will. Because I do sometimes can sound like an acknowledgement of fact. But I will carries with it like I'm willing to do this and I will do what I've just said. Because here's what happens. We repeat these things once and then we move on. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, I will read what I... what I asked the bride and groom to do, and all I'm asking at the end, all right? Now, I'm not asking you when you say I will to go, like this is going to be a wonderful time, all right? Some of you even saying I will go, I don't see anything good on the horizon. If you were married to the knucklehead I was, I'm married to, nothing good is happening here, all right? Like, we need to be in counseling yesterday, and we should have been in counseling this morning, and we need to be in counseling tomorrow. But here's what I want to say to you from the sound of my voice. Church, wake up. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your marriage. We need one another. You need help. All right, You cannot do this alone. That is why the church body is here. That does not mean you go out and just... All right, hey, let me stand up here in confession and tell you, I'm talking about who are the friends around you that need to support you and encourage you. And so when asked, how is your marriage going by a true friend who truly loves you, don't sit there and go, fine. Because let's be honest, if your marriage was ever fine, you'd be perfect, all right? Each one of your marriages has got issues, all right? Some a little more in front than others, but each one of them do that you could be working on. So as we say these things, Listen, and I pray that this truly is. So, when I'm done this, I'm just going to ask you to say, I will. Will you promise to never break your covenant before God? To be true, to love, cherish, encourage, support, protect, and pray for each other. Do you promise to share in laughter as well as tears? in sickness and in health, in poverty or in wealth, now until the end of your days. Your chance. So easily said, isn't it? But Monday's coming. When you wake up for work and the meal's not packed, The clothes are on the floor. The socks have to be stepped over one more time. And the rubber meets the road. Because all of you can sit in a little room like this and go, oh, I will. 
but your life will display it. Dear Holy Father, help us. We desperately need it. May you be the one that is honored, and may you be the one that is glorified in this room. May we love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then and only then may we be able to love those whom you have placed in our care, our spouse. May you be glorified through this. In your son's name we pray. Amen.